Hello, Theologian Raw listeners. Welcome back to another episode of this podcast. Uh, I will be in several different cities in the fall. September 5th, I'll be in Indianapolis. September 16th and 17th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, September 23rd uh, and 24th, Richmond, Virginia. First time uh, ever going to Richmond, Virginia. And it's going to be the first time I will ever go to New York City the following week, September 27th to 28th. I will be in New York City for the first time. And I must say, up until now, Chicago pizza rules. It's the best pizza on the planet. So prove me wrong, New York. I'm going to be sampling probably too much pizza while I'm there. And I'm also going to be speaking at uh, oh, what's it, uh, Church of the City. Is that the name of the church? <laughs> John Tyson's uh, hood over there in Manhattan. I'll be in uh, Colorado Springs October 8th and 9th. I'll be in Minneapolis uh, for two weeks, not straight, but in on November 5th and then also the following week at uh, Northwest University. There's a few other events that are brewing that will be up on the website, centerforfaith.com. Go to the events page, check it out. For most of these that I just mentioned, you have to register and pay. Okay, so you got to sign up. If you plan on going, got to sign up. And that's, uh, I mean, those, those events are practically right around the corner. So especially the Indianapolis one and the Fort Wayne events. So if you plan on going, then you got to sign up, like do so really soon. If not, you might not get a spot. If you don't want to go, that's cool too. Uh, okay, so for today, my guest, Peter Linus is, um, he's an awesome guy. You know, there's a few people you come across and you talk to them, you read some stuff they've written and you're like, where have you been all of my life? (laughs) Wow. That sounds interesting. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So I, I came across Peter Linus, uh, through the so-called or the not so called, but the, the unbelievable podcast, not that it's such an amazing podcast that I think it's unbelievable. It's actually titled unbelievable, um, with Justin Brierly and Justin is an awesome dude. And he awesome. He often has debates, not dialogues, but full on debates on his podcast. And a few months ago he had Peter Linus and another person whose name escapes me, Jenny, I want to say, um, who is a transgender Christian, and he wanted Peter and this person um, talk about transgender issues. And I was blown away at how informed and gracious um, Peter was. He's a lawyer by trade. And if you listen to that podcast, I would encourage you to go listen to that episode. Maybe, maybe even before you hear him here or maybe after, I don't know. But um, I, his lawyerness comes out in that dialogue. He is incredibly sharp. Um, but there's a lot of really sharp lawyers in the world. Um, Peter also is incredibly pastoral, a very gracious guy. And I was so blown away at his, um, not just his articulation of what he believes, but I was more impressed with how graciously he went about that. Uh, Peter is the director of the Evangelical Alliance in Northern Ireland. So he's got this kick in um, Northern Irish accent. He also has an MDiv for Regent College in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, which is one of one of my favorite theological institutions. He, uh, he's uh, he's a speaker. He's a writer. He's the author of a free resource called Transformed. Uh, Transformed is put out by the Evangelical Alliance, and it's a very short yet thorough and gracious overview 
of the transgender conversation. So we do talk a lot about trans stuff. I know that's been uh, kind of a um, every other uh, interviewee that I have on this podcast. It seems that uh, they have some involvement with the transgender conversation. Um, that's somewhat intentional, but also uh, not. Yeah, I kind of sometimes I kind of look up and I'm like, wow, every other guest has been speaking into the trans conversation. So we do get into that. The first half of the podcast is all about transgender stuff. Uh, the second half is just about church, about ministry, about culture, about Jordan Peterson, about N.T. Wright, about resurrection, about evangelism, about Northern Ireland and, and lots of other great stuff. So please welcome to the show for the first time, Peter Linus. All right, I'm here with uh, a guy who I've really wanted to have on this podcast for quite some time now. Um, I first heard Peter on the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Briley in a conversation with a uh, transgender person, and I was so impressed, Peter, with how you balanced um, uh, a commitment to the truth and yet really w- did so graciously and compassionately in honoring the humanity of somebody who you know, you guys were dialoguing with, uh, where you were dialoguing with, and then there were some, you know, uh, some significant disagreements, but I never saw you get kind of heated, you know, or really just, oh, I'm just going to win this argument, or you, you really honored the person. So I, I want to come back to that, but why don't you first give us a brief snapshot of who Peter is, what's your background, and how did you get into ministry? Hey, well, thanks for that. It's great to be on here. I've been looking forward to this uh, too. Uh, I'm based in Northern Ireland in Belfast. That's the strange accent that you'll hear. Um, And uh, I worked as a lawyer for five years, so a court lawyer here. So we're the funny ones, a barrister who dresses up in the wig and the gown. Uh, Really enjoyed that. So that taught me to argue with people. I used to get paid to argue with people. Uh, So now I just take that out of my wife and kids, you know, that was, that was, so there's one part of me trained that way. And then I went off to Regent College in Vancouver, uh, had an amazing time there, studied theology for three years, uh, loved that. And my wife and I worked there, or studied there, came back to Cambridge briefly for a couple of years, did some public policy think tank work around family stuff. And I now work with the Evangelical Alliance, which is the largest and oldest body representing evangelical Christians here in the UK. Okay. And so that work takes me really into the public square and onto media quite a bit on some of these kind of issues. Well, we can, can you unpack more with what the Evangelical Alliance is? Because that's uh, for, for you know, most of my listeners um, are in, are in the, the States. Is there a comparable United States kind of organization? Or are you affiliated with anything more international? Or is it specifically a UK thing? Or So, yeah, the World Evangelical Alliance was kind of birthed out of the UK. So we're the original guys. We fell out with our US friends 170 <laughs> years ago on the issue of slavery. We didn't agree with slave ownership and the U.S. guys wanted that. So we said, then you can't be members. We've <laughs> since reconciled. But there's not a simple parallel, partly for that historical reason. Yeah. But mainly we work with churches, helping them in terms of mission and evangelism, but also on public policy and advocacy. So we don't have the same maybe lobbying and think tank space as you guys would in the States. It's, it's a lot smaller, that space. So we're probably the primary group that would represent evangelical churches both okay. to government and to media, as well as resourcing them to do the kind of mission work. Uh, so we're a pretty small a team of 40 people. We've been around over 170 years, uh, and it's a fun space because it's not 
I love it because it's not just public policy or not just church. The mission is trying to bring these things together and say, even on a topic as difficult as transgender or sexuality, these are critical missional church engaging culture moments. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what floats my boat. And I guess yeah. us as an organization. So you're not, well, so you're not, it's not like you're doing pastoral training. I mean, you're doing, you're li- really living at the intersection between church culture, politics. And so is that, is that correct? Helping the church yeah, understand so kind of what's going on in, in the culture. Yeah. So some of our staff would be more on the missional end and maybe developing resources specifically around that. But okay. mo- quite a number of us are very much at that. The advocacy missional, the missional public theology It's maybe not the catchiest, but that's where we are. We're wanting to wrestle with what does the Bible say in this cultural context and okay. moment. And for the church, we are about serving and resourcing the church. Uh, so a lot of our members are individuals, but many are churches. So it's, it's really saying we want to help you church be the best church you can be at this moment in time. Okay. Wow. That's exciting. Um, can you give us a lay of the land of what is happening in the UK specifically with the, we'll say the gender and sexuality conversation? Um, cause I know that this is, I know in the still anywhere in the West is a massive clash and, and between, you know, the public policy and the church, but not, not just between the church, but even other people who aren't even believers are, you know, there's just a lot going on. Can you maybe give us a, a two minute snapshot on, where are we at in the UK on this conversation on a public level? Yeah, absolutely. So the, in terms of the sexuality, same sex marriage came in in most of the UK. So England, Scotland, Wales, a few years ago, mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, where I'm based doesn't have it. In fact, it's live in our Westminster this very moment as we are recording. Really? Um, there's a try and change that. Um, but largely speaking, that's been accepted in the mainland GB and in, in, in England and Wales that's gone through. But the trans one is right on the cusp at the minute. There's a really interesting cultural conversation in the sense that there had been moves to push self-identification and really go ahead with that. But interesting, it's just like we've reached this slight sort of breaking, people going, well, maybe we don't want to go there. And the longer this goes on, the more it seems we're getting a little bit of caution. So something like the Sunday Times, one of our main newspapers, has definitely begun to push a very questioning narrative. Now, most of the other papers are pretty pro, but it's, we've definitely begun to see a little shift and a tip. But overall, the culture is, yes, pro-trans, this is all good, you should self-identify, all kids should be allowed to just crack on and make the changes. Now, overall, our medical establishment's a little more conservative probably than most places in the States. Um, blockers at 12, but you wouldn't be allowed any surgery below 18. Um, so we're relatively cautious in that sense. But Scotland in particular has been pushing self-identification uh, maybe as young as 16. And England was all set for that. But as I say, they've almost just hit the brakes. Partly, I suspect, the chaos of everything else going on has uh, distracted everybody. Right. But also we've seen the feminists begin to rise up, as has happened globally. Lesbians and others raising deep concerns. And actually, we make this strange coalition with free speech advocates, evangelical Christians, lesbians, radical feminists, all saying, hold on, is this really the way we want to go? And yeah. A big kind of red flag and caution. From my vantage point, it seems like there's a, a high number of UK-based um, yeah, radical feminists or lesbians that are really non-religiously affiliated and very, I guess, liberal in their, in their politics otherwise, um, that are speaking out. And, and I've been, you know... It seems like every time I, I look for a secular um, 
let's just say concern of a particular ideology that's wrapped up in this conversation, I feel like nine times out of 10, I'm reading somebody who's from the UK. It seems like there's a, there's a disproportionate number of UK voices um, rising up. Have you noticed that? Or am I just noticing that because maybe I'm not in the UK. So I, I keep noticing that there seems to be a lot of UK voices that are, yeah, sp- speaking into this conversation. There definitely seem to be quite a number of uh, female and feminist academics speaking yeah. into this space. I don't know if it's something to do with the security of tenure in the UK system gives them maybe a little bit more leeway. Uh, and so definitely in the press, there's a couple of voices coming through. And so we're definitely seeing, uh, I, I agree with you, there is a rise in the questioning voices. In fact, I, I wonder if we're nearly at a kind of peak level of this conversation, just at the very, very upper echelons in academia, they're definitely the pushback is becoming, it's almost a tipping point, I think. Uh, and we would be interested to see if we see that trickle down. It's like it's gone as far as it can go. And then a, a small number, but a significant number of academics are definitely challenging the, the rhetoric and yeah. the narrative and saying, this is going to eradicate women. And I think women, so what's, for me anyway, culturally then women's sport is the other kind of more grassroots level that this kicks in at. So you've got academics at a high level, mm-hmm. then you've women's sport and Martina Navratilova, yeah. the tennis player, and then a swimmer in Britain called Sharon Davies. They've both been very vocal about their concerns or questions. And I think people have suddenly gone, oh yeah, okay, so men are competing in women's sport. And I say that advisedly, it's not as simple as that, but people are really sure. going, that's not fair, that doesn't work. Women's sport would be over if that's allowed. And so I do think sport will become or could already be this another of these cultural tipping points around this. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, it's, it's one that, like you said, it's, it's one thing for a bunch of academics to kind of banter around and, you know, talk about this, but that's not going to grasp the populace. But once you get into sport, I mean, obviously that's going to reach, you know, 95% of the population, um, you, which it does. It school sport. You see it at school sports day, sorry, at things like that. So I've been talking to friends who are maybe a little not sure about it, kind of thinking, yeah. well, I'm inclined to just say, live and let live, you crack on. Right. But then there's this kid who used to be a boy who's now beating my girl in the running race. Yeah. And that just doesn't seem fair. And they're only 10, 11 years old. And three weeks ago, they were turning up in a boy's uniform and they were called Sam. And now they're turning up and now they're Sammy and they're turning up as a girl and they get to run in the girls' race. They're like, well, that, that's, that's not fair. Or they can't compete against my kid in a football game or rugby. You know, so how does this, somebody who was a boy weeks ago, and so literally practically then parents are going, oh, so that's the implication. I'm like, yes, that, that right. is the outworking of this. You see now why we're asking some questions. We're not anti-trans in any way at all, but we do think there are implications that people haven't fully grasped yet. This is yeah. undermining what it is to be a girl or a woman in our society. Do you know, I mean, are, are there people aggressively pushing to get, I'll say, male-bodied persons into female-bodied spheres of sport? I mean, I, I, it just, it's, every time I hear this, this, this sport, the, where this conversation hits sports, it's, uh, it's from people that are very critical of it. It, it seems, I mean, I, I don't want to downplay the complexity of the broader conversation, but it seems that when it comes to sports, like, Look, you can believe that men and women are psychologically exactly the same. You can believe that they're equal and, you know, that, that there should be 50% of women represented in STEM fields. I mean, you can push the psychological. You, you, can, you can diminish, nullify psychological, even behavioral differences. But the one difference between men and women you cannot deny without, you know, 
believing in a flat earth or something is that physically men and women are different, even if they're equal in all other areas. So with sports, that's just, it just seems like, how, how do you, how can people not see that? Like you, you can elevate gender identity over your, your sexual identity all you want, but when it comes to sports, I mean, it just seems like an Orwellian twist of logic. I mean, it, <laughs> what's the other argument? Or what, do you, have, you, have you faced people that are, are constructing a decent, coherent argument for why male-bodied people should be among female-bodied persons in sports? I think uh, not great. I guess, I guess the case of Castor Semenye, the South African runner, is the more ambiguous one. So she's internationally 800-meter runner, um, but in her case, there's uh, different. Uh, she probably suffers from an, an in, or experiences an intersex condition, so there's a lot more ambiguity there. So again, that's sometimes used as a way to push this agenda. And the court of uh, arbitration and sport in Switzerland has ruled on that case and said she does have to suppress hormones. So she obviously uh, has parts of her that were biologically male. So, but that is a classic, in my view, of using an intersex condition to push the trans agenda, and those are two radically different things most trans people virtually all do not there was no ambiguity at birth for them and vice versa most intersex people don't claim to be trans but i've seen that ambiguity used and then people are taking that case and kind of trying to build from it to say this is unfair where should this person compete and i have some sympathy for that it's a very difficult case but it is a different case right. uh, of somebody with a dsd as they call her an intersex condition um, and so, but those are then used as the way you always pick, pick on that and piggyback a trans case behind yeah. that. Um, so I think there's some ambiguity there. And that causes confusion when I talk to people. They're like, oh, but what about that yeah. per Castor Semenye? And I'm like, no, I have a great deal of sympathy. I think she was mistreated and they asked her to take tests without telling her properly what they were. And there was some, some sort of engagement there that was, that was really inappropriate at the time. But fundamentally you're back to as you said the pretty obvious playing field that if somebody who was born male and has trained all their life as a male converts even yeah. later in life and even if they do go on their hormones they still are bulked and built differently that's just a fundamental and most people in the street get that immediately go oh i see your point <laughs> right yeah. and then the conversation often shifts about what this looks like yeah now let's let's <laughs> I literally was going to say transition, but <laughs> let's, I, I want to look at the other side of the coin here because I mean, so far we're focusing on, you know, kind of an ideology in the public narrative. Let's flip it around though, because there's a whole other side here where there are people who are not f lobbying for anything. They're simply trying to not commit suicide because they are suffering from a torturous, unwanted condition they're confused or ostracized from the time they were maybe three or four years old they felt like they weren't at home in their body and and this is a i know for both you and i uh, and, and you know I, I i'm concerned about the destructive ideology i'm also deeply concerned about equipping the church to respond in the radical grace and compassion of christ towards those who are suffering profoundly and i've got friends and i know you do too that man on a daily basis just to not just to battle suicide ideation on a daily basis, largely due to their gender dysphoria. It's like, I don't even have a category for what that must feel like. Can you speak into that a little bit? Uh, Cause I know you've, you've, um, you've been around lots of trans or gender dysphoric people and, and help us understand that side of this conversation. 
Yeah, well, I think it's hugely important. And I think one of the mismatches is when we respond or engage ideologically or theologically sometimes with a pastoral person in front of us mm. and vice versa then when we're all pastoral to an ideology. And when we get that equation wrong, we mm. get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Um, and so there, you know, in, in meeting, first thing I did when we were preparing a resource was to meet those who, transgender groups locally that are engaged in the LGBT community more broadly. So I had some friends and connections from media work I'd done. So I invited groups around. I said, Christian or not, that wasn't the issue. It was just to say, tell me about how you experienced this. Mm. Um, and one of the quotes we put in the resource was, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And it was something somebody said, and I just went, ah, that is so helpful for me. There is no, it's very obvious when you think about it, but there's no one Oh, I've met a trans person. I understand. No, because the next person's having a totally different experience. Some live reasonably comfortably with that discomfort or disconnect. For some, it's massive and daily battles with suicide, as you were saying. For others, yeah. it, it manifests itself radically differently. So I yeah. find that really helpful, kind of first board of call. If you know one person, that's their experience, and somebody else's could be radically different. And yeah. we've got to understand that and meet each person at their point of need. Yeah, And um, probably the other thing I guess for me was a bit around language. There's so much confusion. So there are people with gender dysphoria, and that's a pretty small number of people in the UK and, and globally with that re recognized medical condition where the level of disconnect is strong enough to meet the medical threshold. And then there's a whole group of people for whom it's not. There's some level of disconnect, but it's not that strong. And some people call that gender incongruence to a degree. Some people have different phrases. There aren't recognized medical criteria even for a lot of these. And then there's the much wider ideological movement, which lots of people are in, and people might be non-binary or gender queer or gender fluid. And, and actually that language does a disservice to everybody in many ways, because it's really unclear what we're talking about. So it's back to one person's experience is so different. So the person with gender dysphoria who wrestles with that every day and has done so for years, needs significant help, whereas somebody else might be just experimenting, pushing around, unsure, captured by an ideology for a period. And we, we have to try and treat those people a little differently in our engagement, but it's really hard to read that initially. Yeah. So my primary lens is to engage compassionately, meet people at their point of need, and then at some point I'm going to shift gear. But that might be 10 minutes, three hours, 10 months, <laughs> depending on my journey and my level of relationship before I'm going to be able to maybe push around and explore some of their backstory. Mm -hmm. I think it's Mark Yarhouse usefully has one line. I feel like I've met you in chapter seven. Can we go back a few chapters? Because normally we're going to meet somebody presenting as trans. They've, they're going to present in their new identity to us. And we might not know some of their backstory. We might not even know they're trans. It might take some time before it begins to open up and we might be able to explore that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lens I've used is that compassion, integrity, redemption, uh, mm. Jesus at the well. I think that's a kind of simple summary. You meet people at their point of need as he did the woman in the well in the middle of the day. He moves to integrity pretty quickly. Hey, the man you wish not your husband, you've had mm. five husbands. Um, that, that may take us weeks to get to anything like that kind of conversation, but there's an integrity moment. He, he calls it out. But he always wants to move to redemption. So she goes back and tells everybody, hey, come and meet the guy who told me everything I'd ever done. Mm. Uh, and he, she brings everybody from the town to meet this Jesus guy at the well. And that's where I want to move to with people is ultimately something that's redemptive, transformative. I'm not saying simple, oh, they get fixed. Don't, don't hear that. But I want it to be redemptive and transformative. But that's a movement and a journey. And it's right. not going to be quick in most cases either.
in tr- by transformative, you're not saying that, oh, the gender dysphoria is just going to go away or, or their battle with feeling at home in their body or whatever is just going to, you know, that's just a, a natural byproduct of, you know, praying the sinner's prayer or something like the, like many um, conditions that people suffer from or wrestle with, whatever language you want to use. I mean, we can experience these from birth to the grave. You know, there's people that with all kinds of different conditions or things, or even especially if if somebody has gender dysphoria, identifies as trans, and let's just say they've also have had some traumatic experiences. Not that every transgender person has had a real bad past, but quite a few have, I mean, statistically and just anecdotally in my life, some of the horrific traumatic things that they've been through like that, that, that affects your psyche in, in such ways that it's, yeah, you'll probably carry yeah. the effect, the ongoing effect of those traumatic experiences to the grave. And then you have the whole social stigma and sometimes spiritual abuse and misunderstanding. I mean, it's it's complicated. <laughs> um, yeah, it totally is. So, so definitely not saying a quick fix. Absolutely not. Uh, and, you know, the analogies are always limited. There's always limitations. Sure. But there's something to depression or anorexia sometimes used as, a, as an analogy. Yeah. And you're saying it can be like that. So we don't want to endorse the condition and say, hey, it's okay. There's nothing. We, we want to see change and transformation, but it won't be instant. If an anorexic person meets Jesus, they don't overnight. Right. Or addiction. I mean, I have a friend who was addicted to drugs and his, when he came to faith, it just disappeared like that. Hmm. But, and his view almost was that that would happen for everybody. And I had to work and say, Mate, hmm. you are the, the one in a hundred. It can happen. Mm-hmm. You're proof that it does happen but it's not the norm. Um, and, and the reality is your expectation of other addicts, yeah. that they're just going to encounter Jesus and all sense of addiction just drops. That's not realistic. You, yeah. you know. And likewise with this, so for the odd person that might radically transform, but for most it's a lifelong battle to continue yeah. to wrestle with that condition, to be discipled, to be in community where others come around you. As all of us do with whatever, we all have our things, our crosses that we bear with the things that we carry through. So for some people it's, greed or porn or addiction or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a whole range of things in that list. And we need to be in a community that gathers around us on the journey. And the discipleship yeah. journey on this one is, is hard. I mean, it's tough, tough, tough for those who have gender dysphoria, for sure. Yeah. And I think, yeah, see, seeing the discipleship journey, just that language is so helpful. I mean, it, discipleship is a journey, obviously, but especially in this conversation, it seems that we do need to I've got a good friend who, who experiences gender dysphoria her whole entire life. And yeah, it's just been so helpful to understand kind of what, what this experience is like. And, and she's so good at meeting people where they're at and giving them, she, you know, giving them space to, to, to not be expected to figure it all out overnight. You know, maybe, you know, maybe somebody has certain pronouns that they want you to, uh, you know, and this is getting into a specific <laughs> heated debate within this conversation, but I mean, may- maybe you need to meet them where they're at and use the pronouns that they want you to use. And maybe I got another friend who uh, two years into her discipleship journey, she, she came to grips with the fact that she was a female and she became somewhat okay with people like calling her she, but that took two years of really being sold out for Jesus, committed to the gospel, preaching the gospel and being a genuine, just radical follower of Christ. And even then it, it took a while for her to really come to grips with her sexed body, you know, and, and, and even now it's just, everything's so raw. You know, I think we need to give people space to, 
wrestle with that. Like he said, sometimes it happens overnight in, in my, <laughs> in my discipleship journey. I'm 25 years a Christian. I'm still like, am I still wrestling with this thing that I <laughs> battled with as a teenager, you know? And yeah. Um, and I think we've also got to recognize that our culture doesn't really know how to address the trans issue. So the, the health service here in the UK doesn't have a prescribed kind of outcome or proper measure for how to treat a trans person. So generally we're moving to the affirming, but there's not a set, if this happens, we consider this success. There's mm -hmm. not a designated outcome. And I know in the States and here, it's kind of shifting even what that looks like. Um, but, but there's no uh, easy resolution. So we as Christians sometimes think, oh, we're not sure. We don't have all the answers. Actually, our whole culture has no clarity right. on this question. Yeah. Um, so there aren't good outcomes almost for anybody, because even those who've gone through the operations, many would quite openly admit that they're not there yet. They're, they're not sufficiently right. changed. When I engaged Jenny Ann in that debate, she would say, I haven't changed my sex. I can't change my sex, she said, quite openly. So born male, uh, tra transition to female, talking about pronouns, I mean, as I engaged her, I was happy I, in a conversation with her, I, I'm going to call her Jenny Ann and I'm going to call her she. I, I'm, I don't want to be compelled to do that. So I have real issues at the free speech end. Yeah. The name to me is not the hill to die on. I see lots of analogies as to why I'd happily do that. Pronouns is an interesting one. I get why people are sensitive. Yeah. But in conversation with her, anyway, I was happy to engage her on those terms. But she was open also to admit she couldn't change her sex. She hadn't, even though she'd had multiple operations. Yeah. Uh, and actually, that's the reality. So what point has she reached, even, even taking it out of a Christian journey, and if, you know, a, a stage of being content or, or where she is? Because these are fundamental identity questions that our culture is yeah. wrestling with. Yeah. It's trans one aspect of that. But we're going through like a, a global identity crisis. Yeah. <laughs> we can look at that in national politics. We can look at that in Brexit in the UK. But we can look at that in gender and sexuality and a whole host of issues. This is one example which is, again, where identity is the core question, which is why I think, although it's a challenge to us as Christians, it's also this incredible opportunity. It's yeah. going right to the heart of what it is to be human and, and who we are and our identity in this moment, which is fundamental to our understanding of the biblical text. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it is, it is a, I mean, and it's dealing with fundamental ontological categories of what it means to be human, which, gosh, if, if, we're, if we don't, can't understand that, that's kind of the... <laughs> Yeah, these are foundational, fundamental questions about what it means to be human, what it means to bear God's image, the 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 role of the body in human identity, and so many other fundamental questions. Um, can you, um, when it comes to gender dysphoria, have you done uh, research on the psychological side of this in terms of? And, and my my question is ultimately a pastoral one. I want to know, like, if you're a pastor and you're meeting, if you're doing all the things we're talking about, you're meeting someone where they're at and you're beginning the discipleship journey with somebody. And let's just say, as you and I would agree, we don't think that for a Christian disciple that, that transitioning is, I, I think you would agree that, that that's yeah. not a moral option for me. Um, okay. And then the pushback is, okay, so what's the other option? And in my, you know, I want to say, well, transitioning in itself hasn't proven to be, you know, a, a, a for sure thing that's going to be, you know, relieve it all. But if, if I say no to transition to somebody I, as a discipler, as a Christian, what are the other options? Have you seen any other ways of managing dysphoria that have been proven to be effective? 
So I think one of the challenges we have is actually we have very limited um, resources or even examples on this, partly because it's relatively new. There have been a few cases that have gone on a lot longer, but obviously the, the vast number of people have presented within the last few years. Um, I don't think we have the same Christian organizations, particularly in the UK. You guys have a few more in the US. You have people who have gone through this journey over a longer period of time. We have very few. So someone like Living Out, who I would turn to here on the sexuality question, and we worked very closely with and really helped kind of in the early days, um, helped form and shape that. That was a great resource to be able to go, okay, I don't understand all that you're going through, so I'd love you to connect with these guys who are living biblically and orthodoxly in response to that. There are very few people I can turn to in, that, in the trans uh, sort of space. One lady, Jeanette, who actually does a lot of work with Living Out, we did a video for and is on our website in, in EA. And Jeanette tells the story really of growing up and saying, uh, I grew up female. I knew, I didn't feel like a female. I knew I wasn't a boy like my brother, so I wasn't sure what I was. She ultimately moved into a lesbian lifestyle um, for a few years, then encountered Jesus, knew before anybody told her that that wasn't going to work, that she needed to come away from that yeah. and did that. But, but she's now 20 years, let's say, into her discipleship journey. I mean, she's loved Jesus throughout that time, talks about this, uh, her sexuality, uh, as somebody who now lives orthodoxly in response to that, but also with the unease with her own body. And a number of years ago, when she talks about this in the video, she was diagnosed and needed to have a mastectomy. She went to the surgeon. The surgeon expected the, the, the usual response from a, from a lady that she would be dismayed. And she said, here's the thing. My natural, my, my inherent reaction was one of almost ah, relief of the sense of I never felt comfortable with that part of my body. And she said, this is, this is her having declared over her body, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and, and recited that psalm day after day over herself, loving Jesus, involved in church, like fully committed, but still almost like deep within her was that sense of unease of parts of her body that only came out at that moment and saying that's her wrestling that through. So someone like Jeanette is somebody I turn to to ask maybe how do, how do we engage in this? Mm -hmm. And for her, it's the daily battle. It's the daily discipleship to speak that over her body. And there are still moments where it kind of still bubbles out. Yeah. And so it's incredibly hard to know over the long term. She has uh, come to terms with that. She has been discipled in that. Um, but, but it's not like we're pointing and going, there's these lovely, easy, wonderful right. case studies over here. As right. with so many things, it's difficult and it's messy and requires us all to rally around. I hope over time we'll get a few more just yeah. so we, we can signpost more people. There are people. There are a few. There's a number who are un, unwilling or just uneasy at telling their story yet because they know what that means. It means a lot of attention and people coming to look at them. Yeah. Jeanette has been bold enough to do that. We've got it on video. We've put it out there. Um, but that, that is a challenge in this space just to, to have those stories. Yeah. And she and a, another psychologist certainly helped me wrestle through, well, okay, if we're saying no to an operation, it does mean a long journey of coming to terms with as best you can um, who, the body that you are born into, your physical sex, um, uh, and generally tending to reconcile how you feel with the physical body that you have. And that body is, is, is key to understanding that. But that's a long, slow, often requires counseling and, and, and engagement around that and a community that wraps around you. I think a, a huge, I, I appreciate that. And, I, you know, there's a, um, I don't know if you know the name, uh, Hashi Horvath is a former, um, uh, he identified as a female for a number of years, seven, 10 years. Um, uh, 
and then now is detransitioned and is, is, I mean, and not a Christian, extremely outspoken against the ideology and, and, you know, yes. so the language can be very, for lack of better terms, triggering <laughs> if you are a transgender or, or experienced gender dysphoria. But uh, Hashi is a, a professor at the uh, University of uh, California, San Francisco, very informed person. Anyway, Hashi has a on- online article that even, and I, and I haven't, um, verified this, but he said that um, research into alternative means of managing dysphoria is, is been more or less blocked because there's such a push in the broader culture and in, in, in the medical industry or whatever to to transition. That transition is the only way. It's either transition or you're going to have a suicidal person on your hands and so forth and. Um, and, and because there's only been one narrative that's been, uh, popular, popular, popularized that research into other ways of managing dysphoria is, is not given the attention it should, um, which that, that to me is, this is where an ideology can really have harmful effects on people. If that's true, again, I haven't really verified that, but, um, another area that, um, I think plays a huge role is the gender stereotypes and, and, it does seem that on so many levels, gender stereotypes is so intertwined in this conversation. But one thing I think the pastors in the church can do is not to not reinforce those stereotypes. That If you are a female bodied person, um, you don't have to fit into this box of cultural femininity, you know, and same thing for a male bodied person. Have you, have you done much? I mean, this is a basic question. I hope you can help me out here with all your theological training. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what does it mean? I mean, this is such a basic question and I should know this, but what does it mean to live like a female biblically? Cause you got females driving tent pegs through people's heads. You have Proverbs 31 woman who's, you know, a businesswoman, but she's also waking up early providing food for her kids. And then you have the women in the gospels that are breaking down cultural expectations. So besides the role in reproduction, <laughs> what does it mean to live out your femaleness or maleness biblically? And when have you violated that? Uh, so I think that's a great, that might be the, the $64,000 question on this one. Um, I think to, so I want to pause while I think about it and jump back for a second <laughs> to say, so in the UK, we've got exactly the same as you in terms of that research piece. Yeah. So there was a guy looking to do his master's at Bath University. The ethics committee said no, and he was interested in detransitioning as a counselor. I mean, no faith background, just just interested. Uh, then we've had the figures here where we've had this move. So, I mean, if you told me five years ago somebody turned up at our main clinic in the UK, statistically they would have been five to six years old, a male, and they would not have ended up transitioning. They would have remained in their birth sex so 80% of those who present before adolescence stay in their birth sex. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you told me somebody turned up yesterday, so that was five years ago, if you told me they turned up yesterday, statistically they would have been 14, 15, they would have been female, and there was an 80% chance they would move through to transition. Huh. So that's wow. a radical shift. So it used to be mainly born male to now female. It used to be mainly five, six, seven years old, younger, now teenagers. And those who appear before adolescence don't go through the transition, whereas most of those who appear after do. Hmm. And here's the thing, nobody basically is doing any research on that. In any other field, you go, wow, what a change in five years. We need to understand that. That's massive. 
And the only person who's really looked at that phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria, yeah. uh, Littman in Brown yeah. University got her paper pulled. She's got it back eventually, but man, did she go through the, the ringer on that, as you know. Yeah. So it is like it's food to research. And yet we're saying, hold on, this is a massive shift. We need to talk about that as a culture. Yeah. Um, so that on that, on the sex and gender, I think this does get to the heart. I, I absolutely agree with you on the stereotypes. You know, you know, hundred Prince George, our uh, our royal baby, uh, got uh, christened a few years ago, and he was in this big white frilly dressy thing, and it was like it looks, it does look like a dress, but actually it's just what boys were dressed in 150 years ago because it's so old. This this garment that the royal gets baptized in or christened in, um, and it was that kind of thing that uh, you know boys used to wear pink 150 years ago. Now yeah. they wear blue and you put a girl in pink. These kind of stereotypes, and sometimes we as Christians have definitely said. Uh, well, you boys go and play outside and do that. You girls stay inside and do these things. And we've embraced a cultural stereotype, what is female and female. And then yeah. somebody who doesn't fit that thinks, as you're saying, oh, I'm in the wrong body. Because this goes to the heart of the trans. What does it mean to be in the wrong body? What does it mean that I am right. born in a male body but feel like a female? Right. So I want to ask culture the same question. What are you saying? What is it that makes you feel female? Is it that you're caring? Is it you're effeminate that you like pink like i don't mean to trivialize but what makes you think you're in the wrong body and we as christians need to be really careful we don't fall for those gender stereotypes yeah. and do certain things with our daughters or our sisters or girls and certain things with our boys but it's really hard to say well this is a thing that a boy or a male does and this is the thing that a female does i have two daughters and my wife and I are trying to make sure we, we think really well about what it is to be a good daughter and good parents to them as girls and not just fall into some stereotypes that they should follow these prescribed paths. And biblically, I, I find it really hard to say, well, this thing's definitely something only a boy can do and this thing's something a girl right. can do. As you say, bar some of the, the um, reproductive roles, um, there's a, like beyond that, there seems to be a fair degree of scope and yet we don't want to undermine the physicality of the body and that yeah. sex and links to gender. But, but basically in Hebrew and in many cultures, those were one thing. We've differentiated sex from gender and said, well, you can have sex as one thing and as in biological sex and your gender is something else. Yeah. It's just a kind of unknown concept historically yeah. in lots of cultures and even in, in more recent cultures. So I want to push that norms thing, but there's no easy answers. And I suppose the one other caveat I want to give is we've talked about some of our more both conservative and charismatic and different friends who are who have different views on egalitarian and complementarian right. and saying, let's make sure we don't fall out about those because we have different understandings of what might be those a different sex can do. Right. Uh, but we agree on the principles around this trans issue. So let's just be careful not to end up falling out on a kind of secondary issue down the line about this. Because yeah. um, I, I was hoping that our document and this that discussion we're having something are slightly more conservative, more charismatic, whatever friends would all agree upon, even though our understanding of giftedness and of sex or gender roles might lead us to some different places within the church. So it raises a number of those questions that we do need to be careful about. And as a broader evangelical organization, we're a little cautious just to say exactly what a man or a woman can or can't do because yeah. our churches and membership have slightly different views on that too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I think it's healthy for, in 2019 and going forward, g given how cataclysmic things are right now, that we don't divide over the egalitarian and complementarian position. Because um, I can, yeah, I can, I don't know where you're at on that, but I grew up staunchly complementarian, like hardcore, you know, and, and uh, just, I don't know, a, a lot of the arguments, I just don't, 
see anymore. Yeah, a lot of the arguments for the egalitarian position, I'm like, I don't know if that's, I don't know. I see holes in that too. So I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle of that now and kind of like, you know, I, I, until I have more time to kind of really look into this, I need to plead the fifth, as we say in, in, in the States. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't, I think we need to unify as a church around these secondary issues and by secondary, not to downplay the significance of it. You know, I mean, especially, especially if you're a woman, this is a sick, you know, whether or not you're allowed to serve in ministry leadership positions. I mean, that's, that's a, I don't want to diminish that at all, but not every, you know, white straight male who is a complementarian is a, you know, misogynist, bigoted, anti woman, you know, um, well, can you give us a let's why don't we shift gears a little bit and, and just give us a broader uh, understanding of the of the where's the church at in, in Northern Ireland specifically? And I asked because I, I has spent a whopping two days in Northern Ireland in Belfast a few years ago. And um, they the, the, the phrase that somebody used to describe the church in Northern Ireland is that it's the Bible Belt of the UK. <laughs> does that yes is that <laughs> true or does <laughs> and i was kind of shocked by that but in my 48 hours there i'm like and and you know i gave a few seminars on sexuality and the questions i was getting it was very different than when i was in scotland or england or wales and and i was like oh i, I that's interesting i would like to follow up with that is that how or how would you describe the church in northern ireland yeah, I think that has that is still true and historically has been the case. So certainly England, Scotland in, in recent years in particular have seen quite significant decline and Wales. Northern Ireland still has probably around 20% church attendance. In our context, that's about 10% to Protestant churches, 10% to the Catholic Church. Um, and Eng- whereas England's going to be down at less than 5% um, in, in many areas. Now, there's... Pockets of growth in England that are really exciting around the HTB Alpha Network, around the Nigerian and black and minority churches. Um, One of the concerns for us is there's a bit of a cultural overhaul. So we're probably a little bit closer to the States in some ways like this. So there's still an attendance that's maybe beginning to drop a little bit older. And are are we going over the next few years see that really decline? The church's influence is really under pressure. Um on some of those hot button issues, abortion, marriage, as I say, literally today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also really positive signs. We're seeing a lot of people come to faith. We're seeing God on the move in the church. Um, and so there's lots of things that excite me and the work that I get to do going out, meeting churches and hearing the stories. But the cultural conversation is definitely a little different on some of those issues. That's why we don't have marriage, same-sex marriage. We basically are now the only Western country not to have abortion on demand. Um, so mm-hmm. it's a big issue for us, one that we're working really hard. We've got a kind of Both Lives Matter campaign championing that to protect both lives. But that's really under pressure because the south of Ireland went and really that was a lot of American and other money coming in saying, if we can take the south, Catholic Ireland, if it goes in, any country can go. And it did go and that is the sense and, and it's the north next is the big push. So on a number of those issues, we're really trying to fight to say, Do you know what, this, this transcends religion. Abortion is just, you know, yeah. It's one of those issues we've got to just work really hard on. So, uh, yes, still the Bible Belt, stuff changing, some exciting yeah. stuff, some stuff that'll, yeah. The, so, the, so culturally, the, the it's it's even more conservative. You're saying even outside outside the church, Northern Ireland would be more politically conservative. Is that would that be accurate? Or yeah, okay. yes. But the danger is a bit like Ireland in the south that that held and held and held, and then there's suddenly a moment where it just can't hold, and it just goes overnight. So in a sense, that's what happened to the Catholic Church in the South. 
other factors and a bit of a scan, the scandal, but it was so dominant, 90, 95% of the people. Now suddenly you've seen five years later, they're voting in favor of same-sex marriage, voting in favor of abortion. Mm. So the, the danger is if you hold on like that against the culture moving the other way, suddenly it can sweep away so quickly and mm-hmm. nothing's left. Um, so yeah, in, in Catholic Ireland, I mean, how, how did abortion on demand get passed? I, I, that's shocking. I mean, um, it's such, a, such an anti-Catholic sentiment. It had such dominance. It has such a hold. And then suddenly it swept away with this sense of particularly around the, the, the abuse scandal. It was oh, just yeah. this right. We're so against it now and there's nothing in its place. So it's fascinating having a values or an ethics or a moral conversation. There is no framework. So in other countries, it's moved more slowly and people have adopted different ways of thinking. It's like in Ireland where we're not Catholic, stroke the church. So we're anything but that. And it doesn't matter what the other thing is, we're going for it. I mean, it's a kind of scary secularism, a little bit like Quebec and Canada. Maybe there's a bit of a kickoff in the same way. Um, But it's fascinating from a sociology perspective, like, whoa, uh, but mentionally, like it's wiped the slate clean. There's almost like a new generation coming through. And in one sense, we're going in clean and we're saying, fair enough, that's gone. Huh. Uh, we want to tell you about Jesus. And you, most of them now, young people don't know anything about them. So there's a, yeah. there is one sense in which you can come in afresh in that. Yeah. So Holy what? Spirit encounters are really interesting, healing. You know, people don't want anything traditional church, but they will come to something fresh and new. It is interesting when, when, when there's disruption at a cultural level, how that opens up oftentimes fresh opportunities for the gospel to go forth, right? Um, I, totally. I mean, I think we're in this chaotic world, the identity crisis, whatever you want to call it. It's the chaos. It's Genesis 1 writ large again of the chaotic nature of things. So who do people turn to? And I see them turn into two people, Jordan Peterson on one hand, <laughs> and what he's giving a small scale micro order in response to the chaos of your bedroom or whatever you want to say. And yeah. there's this little lady, Marie Kondo, who, uh, this Japanese lady who cleans your house. And some people are saying, well, here's the thing. When it's chaotic outside and there's Brexit and there's Trump and there's whatever's going on in Canada and the European Union collapsing and people go, well, the one thing I can control is my space. So I'm going to tidy my house huh. because I can control that. And I think both of these are interesting. Jordan Peterson or the tidier house lady are ways of us trying to bring a small piece of order because the yeah. chaos is so much and so overwhelming. We don't know what to do, yeah. but actually it's a great opportunity for the church. Like my friends aren't saying 15 years ago, they said, look, Pete, I don't need your Jesus. Economically, I'm fine. I've got a good job. I'm good. And I've got a career. And even five years ago, they're saying, look, politically life's good. We've got Clinton. We've got Blair. We've got a peace process in Northern Ireland. Life's good. Nobody's saying that now. Nobody uh. knows what's going to happen six months down the line, let alone three years, they, they have no idea where this world is going to. And I think yeah. that's the same globally. So actually, I think it's a really interesting moment to be speaking into the chaos and trying to bring life, speaking into the kind of the Torah Babel, if you want to call it. They, we've got more and more communication, but less and less understanding. These are wonderful moments to take the gospel in. Uh, and I, I find, so some people, the trans, the sexuality are actually really good entry points if we get it right. What I love about trans, and maybe tension again, is you can't proof text this. You can't just yeah. say, oh, here's our little text on the eunuch and that's us, or here's the cross-stressing text from Deuteronomy. That doesn't work. And that's a right. good thing because Christians are, it's just kind of cheap. Oh, I've got my text here. That's it done. It's like, no, you can't do that. And I, I mean, I said to people before, like, if the arc of the story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and we take those, even those big moves, 
And what we did is 150 years ago was people were moving away from churches. We needed to have mission events. You'd half an hour to get the gospel across. Creation, too big an issue to talk about. Redemption, or sorry, restoration and, and the new heavens, new earth, too much. So we shrunk it down to a simple story. And I'll, I'll pick on you and say, hey, Preston, you're really bad. I barely know you, but I feel comfortable saying that. But it's all right because I'm an ex-lawyer. I've got, a, I've got a solution in my pocket. I've got the golden ticket to heaven. Jesus died for you. And I create that simple fall redemption narrative of you're bad. Here's a golden ticket to save your soul and go to heaven. And nowadays, it's awkward for me to say you're really bad. I find that easy, but hey, that's because that's we're now friends. But I don't say you're bad. I just say Jesus loves you. And that's such a cheap version of the gospel that doesn't work. And then we wonder on either of those two shrunk stories, mm. when transgender comes along, we don't have an answer. Well, mm. if all we were ever about was saving a soul, I mean, that's actually the same Gnostic heresy that the transgender <laughs> movement are falling for. It's, it's actually the <laughs> fundamentalist version of the same thing. And Tom writes on point, whereas if we're saying, actually, you were made in the image of God and you were put in a body, not a shell that you inhabit temporarily. It's, it's, it's inherent. It's part of who you are. And so if you feel a disconnect, that's not surprising because God created you for wholeness. So we started at creation, not at fall, because what Christians, and particularly fundamentalists, do is go straight to fall, mm -hmm. and they think they're being more biblical. They're not. That's not where the Bible starts. It always starts with creation, what is good. Yeah. So we want to build a bridge with those who are wrestling with sexuality and say, hey, of course you want a relationship. You're wired for a relationship. Mm -hmm. Of course you want to feel comfortable in the body you're in. You were made for that body. Now, if you feel a sense of disconnect or loneliness or brokenness, oh gosh, I, I know what that is. It's the fall. I'll probably not use that language, but I think yeah. I know what's going on. I would love to lead you into a redemptive encounter with Jesus. And moving forward, I'm going to unpack something that's going to be about the restoration of all things, not just your soul, not a magic ticket to heaven. Your whole body is going to be resurrected and you're going to be in a new heavens and a new earth and a whole new world that we can't fully comprehend. But that larger story, it feels to me, is a much better engagement with the trans community, with the LGB community, with all communities. But we narrowed it down, said we were being more biblical, and actually committed the very same heresy, I want to argue, at the limits mm. of saying, you've only got a soul, and I'm about saving your soul and getting a magic ticket out of here. So, that, so that, theologically, I think that's the richness. That's fascinating. I'm the last seven minutes. <laughs> the, 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 it, it's, uh, if I could summarize what you're saying that one of the beauties um, of the, for lack of better terms, a trans conversation becoming front and center in the church is that it's exposing our own disembodied kind of theology that, that we've had um, and, and, and our lack of uh, emphasis on the creation in the gospel story. Um, yeah, that's... Yes. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many other ways so in which... Um, it's kind of like with the sexuality conversation and, and some people get nervous when I say this, but I, you know, I talk about the beauties of, of the LGBT, specifically the LGB conversation becoming such a big thing in the church. What it's done is, it, is it's exposed our own very anemic sexual ethic. You know, <laughs> what is marriage for? What is sex for? Why are we sexual beings? And, and what are all the, you know, straight sexual sins that are plaguing the church? And let's, as Peterson would say, clean our own closet before we start helping others clean theirs. And, and, and the gen, or, or even going back, I mean, I ask, you know, I, <laughs> I've got a PhD in Bible and I, in, at this moment, I'm not quite sure biblically what it means to live out our masculine or feminine identities, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like goodness, that's a, that's kind of a, 
shouldn't I have gotten that in first year in seminary? What does it mean to be a man and a woman beyond our reproductive capacity? So, I mean, again, these, these cultural conversations that some Christians get annoyed at and why are we having this? And I'm like, man, it's helping us to see some blind spots in our own theological framework, you know? Um, I think, I think it really does. It helps us to think a bit better and it pushes us. Cause I think if you don't have something around maybe the Gnosticism idea and find that our bodies are temples of the Holy spirit, um, you're going to struggle with in the trans conversation to really get to some of the nub of what it is. But when Paul talks there about, you know, food for the stomach, the stomach for food and the Corinthians saying, Hey, it doesn't matter what I eat. It's only going into my physical body. And yeah. Paul says, are you nuts? Which is the Northern Ireland version of that message or whatever, <laughs> you know, are, are you guys mental? Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know your bodies are going to be resurrected? Didn't you see what the first fruits were like? That Jesus is bodily resurrected? Like, yeah. oh, so why are we teaching a gospel that says, you know, we have an anchor that saves the soul. We're about saving souls. My soul's going to heaven. I'm going to float around on a cloud playing a harp with like wings on. None of that's in the Bible, but it's in people's minds. And it's really dangerous stuff. Yeah. It's kind of comical, but really sad. And then we wonder why we're on the back foot on the trans debate. Yeah, We're not if we get this text right and dig into it. Because it has yeah. loads to say. But if you have that kind of fairly cheap, slightly fundamentalist kind of gospel floating around, that is yeah. pretty much the same message flipped. It's like, you're just a soul. This outer world doesn't matter. It's going to be burned up and destroyed. Well, it's a total misread of 2 Peter. It's a misunderstanding of what's going on in Revelation 21. But that's going to get you into some serious trouble. And then yeah. you won't care about creation. So a culture goes, well, I don't care about you guys then. You don't care about bodies. You don't care about sexuality. You don't care about everything. Yeah. And so we're now wondering why on creation care, on trans, on sexuality, we don't look like we have a lot to say when we should. <laughs> that's what's really frustrating. It's not the... I love this because the Bible is loose to say on it. If I yeah. thought the Bible didn't, I'd be really edgy and going, yikes, I'm just scraping something together. Actually, I think it has a whole load to say. Uh, and I want Christians to re-embrace it. This is a discipleship moment as much as an engaging culture. I'm like, guys, we need to get our house in order. Yeah. Learn the text. See it has a load to say that will change us as well as those we're talking to. I think we only think it doesn't have much to say when we look at it. Uh you know, for like finding individual verses. And we're so prone to read the Bible that way rather than a grand story with principles and rhythms embedded throughout that, that we're supposed to live in line with. I think we're so pre-programmed to find the verse, you know, the law, the rule, the do this, don't do that. And again, those laws and verses play a role, but there are, as you, as you've been saying, I mean, there are an over an overwhelming um, theme of embodiment throughout scripture. I mean, it's central in Genesis one and two and, and obviously first Corinthians six and others. Um, oh shoot. I had and a question. It, it the, just... the incarnation, everything, you know, one of my colleagues said, but what about the ascension? And at every point he's like, this is just constant. There's a bodily nature to it. That's yeah. really interesting and challenging and exciting. So, yeah. Or even the, yeah. How, how pervasive, resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection is, plays a, I mean, dominant theme throughout the New Testament. I mean, I, I remember, um, you, I don't know if you read N.T. Wright's, uh, the resurrection of Jesus or whatever that, yes. you know, I think he yeah, even yeah, originally yeah. said this is supposed to be a chapter in one of his books and it ended up being a 700 page book on its own because he said, there's just, you can hardly turn the page, turn any page in the New Testament and not see resurrection playing some ethical or eschatological or at least theological role in everything that's going on there, um, which resurrection is intrinsically an embodied kind of category. Um, 
Oh, Jordan Peterson, you 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 happened to drop the JP bomb in passing. <laughs> and I haven't I I um I actually paid attention to Peterson before he was kind of that well known. It was with the whole Bill C sixteen thing, and somehow somebody turned me yeah. on to him when he had, you know, seventy thousand followers on Twitter, not, you know, 1.5 million or whatever. But uh, in the last several months, I, I haven't really paid attention. Is, is his, well, two questions. Um, well, let me just say one question. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the missiological, the missiological significance of Jordan Peterson. I find his, his, his teaching, his thoughts intriguing. And I, I like a lot of what he says. Some things I'm like, I'm not sure whatever, but I'm more interested in the missiological significance of Jordan Peterson. How is it that this guy has been more significant in turning former atheists into now at least theists? How is it that a guy who would be not, whether he's a Christian or not, I'm not really that interested, but he can fill a room thousands of people and give a three hour lecture on Noah and the flood when I don't know a single preacher in the world. Well, who can fill a room of non-Christians who are yeah. want to hear a guy talk about Noah and the flood or the Bible for three hours and they'll pay money to come hear that. And yet we can't keep people in our churches with Christians who are supposed to naturally want to hear that. So I'm just like, what, what is that? What is the missiological significance of him and how, how can the church maybe learn from the wake that Jordan Peterson is, has created. Have you thought through that? Can you help us understand and learn from that? <laughs> I mean, I, I've tried to think a little bit about it. I find it really interesting. I was at one university context and I had a little Peterson anecdote. And then I said, so how many people have heard of him? And there were about 150 in the room and there were two people. And I was like, oh, wow. right. Now those two people were straight up to me afterwards because I said, obviously I'm not going to use that story then. And they <laughs> wanted to know because it was a bridge for them. But then I was talking to a couple of teenagers just on Sunday and they were like, just Jordan Peterson nuts. And so you have these interesting pockets where he pops up. And for me, it's a bit of a bridge build. Whereas you say, he can fill a room. He gives 12 lectures in Toronto on Genesis 1 to 12. Some yeah. of the stuff is mental. Some of it's fascinating. His <laughs> insights are both genius and mad. Yeah. He seems to get law, but not grace. Yeah. You know, he gets yeah. that the world is chaotic. And so he's, I think it's the chaos piece for me that comes through in his book and in those lectures. And he says, you know, from tidying your room to a bigger piece of getting your life in order, it's chaos out there. And people go, yes, it is. And he says, I'm going to tell you how to deal with that. And we as Christians don't even identify the cultural problem. It's chaos out there. And there's an identity crisis. And I would love to turn you to Genesis 1 and 2. And we need to do better. So I try and use him as a bit of a bridge builder because he opens some doors. But there's no doubt he doesn't get it all. Sure. He doesn't have a sense of what the Holy Spirit is doing. But right. he gets the Father, heart of God. He doesn't quite know what to do with Jesus, I would say. And he definitely doesn't seem to know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Right. But he's opened some fascinating doors that you can bridge build over. Now, other right. people will just go, as soon as you mention JP, boom, no, no, I'm out. I'm like, okay, so I need to come a different way with you. How can I build a bridge into your world that looks a little different? Yeah. So for me, it's that cultural bridge build moment. Uh, and then I springboard off him and say, but I think he's left you somewhere short. Mm -hmm. He's never going to solve your problem because ultimately it's a self-help ideology at core. He's yeah. got his self-writing or whatever. And he's going to say, you have to sort your own problem. You have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Eventually you have to tidy your room. I'm like, that's not going to work for everybody. And it's not going to work for anybody in the long term. At some yeah. point we need huh. lifted up by somebody else. We need Jesus in that moment. Yeah. Um, so 
you're you're a glorified self-help guru, but you're an interesting guy who's bridge built into this world. That's I, I've often said he's got an Augustinian uh, view of human nature and a very hyper Pelagian view of redemption. You know, he gets he gets part of the story <laughs> very right, and then when it comes to the redemption piece, it's yeah, it's it's not. I mean, cr- Christian at all, really. Um, but but the but the chaos, the fall, the human nature and, and we have good and evil and every, you know, in us and, and that, that stuff's really good. I, I'm fascinated just at the, um, I've often said, man, I think that the church Christians, maybe at least in America, I didn't experience this as much in the UK. You know, I made a comment that I feel like every other person's doing a PhD in the UK and, and intellectual intellectualism is valued in the UK a lot more than, than I see in America. Um, but one thing Peterson has shown is that I think people are interested in, deeper, more profound, more intellectually honest and robust conversations. And this is something I wish, again, the church in America would, would under, would understand that the, the church growth stuff that may have worked in the eighties is just, it's not going to work. And even that term, you know, working is, I think misunderstood, but um, I, I hope that people learn from the wake of Jordan Peterson that, people aren't as stupid as we think they are. They're interested in deep, thoughtful conversations, you know. Um, know. We send everybody, I mean, the aspiration 20 years ago, people like my parents was to send, my dad didn't go to uni, my mom went to teaching college, but they, they wanted us to go to university. That's the aspiration, get to college, get to uni. And so for many people in the church, we want to send our kids to further education of some type, but we don't want to prepare them for it. So we basically yeah. teach some Sunday school stuff. I would say my faith plateaued at 12. I just got the same stuff over and over again. And yeah. yet they wanted me to go off to uni where I was going to get wrecked. Yeah. And I did. And I nearly lost my faith. I was yeah. kind of schizophrenic for two years with this really simplistic 12-year-old faith, this new legal thought. And I was going, these two things are incompatible until like huh. C.S. Lewis and Tom Wright and people helped me navigate this by reading their stuff. But I was like at sea for a while. Wow. So like, what are you guys doing teaching me this stuff? So as you say... It's a weird aspiration to say we want to get you trained to the best we can at uni, but we don't. But we're going to leave your faith at this pretty yeah. basic, rudimentary level, particularly in the kind of Baptist tradition that I was raised in. Mm. And I think we're finally re- realizing that people are up for this conversation. If, if more than half the people in the UK are going to university, they should be able to hold this kind of level right. of conversation and talk about it. In fact, they want to. And if we Christians don't create it, they will go somewhere else. They yeah. will listen to rubbish podcasts, as a lot of my friends do traveling. <laughs> and then I wonder why in literally weeks it feels like they go off the deep end. Yeah. Mark Sayers is really into this. I was talking to him recently, like how quickly people can get radicalized to a particular message. Yeah. You could spend hours and hours and hours just, just commuting in and out to work. And you can listen to some pretty trashy stuff that just takes you off. So we've yeah. got to get some good content because people are thinkers. Like we're fully engaged people. Yeah. Like let's get our minds yeah. wrestling this text can take it. The Bible, God's, God's up for these conversations. He's okay with this. <laughs> yeah, so good. Peter, we are out of time, man. I'm taking you over an hour. So thank you so much for being uh, part of this podcast. How can people find you? And um, if you Google Peter Linus, you might get a children's book author that is not you, I don't think. Uh, there, I think there's another. <laughs> I'm not a children's book author, that's for sure. Uh, so the resource, well, we, I, I mentioned the resource. So we wrote a, a, a kind of thing that you can download. So it's at uh, www.eauk.org okay. uh, forward slash trans. 
There you'll find the videos and a PDF of the book that we produced. Uh, I go under at Peter Linus on Twitter, L-Y-N-A-S, okay. and I think you guys are going to link to that. Yeah. And we have a, a website, reimaginingfaith.com, uh, which is part of the Northern Ireland bit of VA where I, I try and put some stuff out. Uh, yes, so um, I'm sure people can, yeah. can find me there and thereabouts. And I like to speak and engage on these kind of issues, as you say, where the, where the cultural arrowhead is and intersects with us as faith yeah. is what I'm, I'm around to try and bring people into relationship with Jesus ultimately. So your book, uh, Transformed, it's a, the, well, the PDF online, it's free that you wrote. Um, yep. I just want to highly recommend that resource. And I say that because whenever I come across Christians addressing trans, the trans conversation, I go in with a lot of skepticism, a lot of pessimism, like, I'm going to rip this thing to shreds. This is going to be either all compassion, no truth, or typically if it's from a Christian, it's going to be vice versa. You know, it's going to hammer away at the ideology and not really care about people. And I was blown away at how well and informed, how well written and informed and pastoral and theological this short little resource. I don't know. Is it like seven, 8,000 words at most? I mean, it's a, it's yeah, a real, like, yeah. real accessible resource. And it just is, it's high. Yeah, it's free. So go, <laughs> everybody should go read it. Uh, um, yeah. So thank you for producing that. Thanks for your uh, commitment to the Bible, to Christianity, and for um, also loving people well, Peter. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, listen, thank you so much. It's been great to be here. I've been following what you're doing. Thank you for what you're bringing to the church. I think we both love the church. That's why we do this stuff. We really want to help the church navigate this space. We want to see people encounter Jesus. So thank yeah. you as well. It's been, been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Theology in the Raw. If you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Become part of the Theology in the Raw community and get access to premium content. If you have been touched by this show, uh, challenged, or if it just drives you crazy, but like, uh, like a car accident, you just can't stop looking and listening and listening and looking and for some odd reason you want to therefore support the show financially hey that works too go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw support the show for as little as five bucks a month get access to premium content also uh, access to the theology in the raw community where we talk about all kinds of fun stuff so thanks for listening we'll see you next time on theology in the raw